Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. We're also proud to partner with Sitka Gear. And if you go to sitkagear.com, you'll see their full line of clothing. And their tagline is turning clothing into gear. And they are doing that through advanced technology that allows you to stay in the field longer, hunt harder, and stay safer. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Um, the, the insider is changing how haunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. And with that, Corey... We are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Well, Corey, I, I hope that people are interested in elk hunting in Oregon, because if they are, they're going to learn from you, not me. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's a, a positive thing to start out a podcast with, but I have uh, at least hunted Oregon a couple times, and I believe if I'm uh, remembering correctly, you've never hunted elk in Oregon. Is that right? 
That is correct. It's always on my list uh, going there and hunting Roosevelt's. Roosevelt elk is on my list. Really, after I finish my mountain caribou hunt this fall, my next item on that list is Roosevelt elk. Really? Yep. Well, I should so, be. I should pretty much be an expert after this season on Roosevelt elk. It'll be my second time hunting them. Oh, you're going back, huh? I am going back, and I hmm. say that I will be an expert very facetiously because <laughs> I learned last year I have a, a lot to learn about Roosevelt elk, <laughs> mostly the terrain. So, but so last year you went, didn't you go the opening week last year? We did, yeah. So it was August 25th, 26th, something like that. It was super mm-hmm. early. Okay. And you're going when this year? Uh, we're going a little later, later. so okay. yeah, we're going September sixth, I believe, through the fourteenth. So, hmm. okay, yeah. Well, you go there and learn everything, and then next year uh, I'll take notes before I go over there. I the the weird part is I applied in Oregon for years and years. I think I had eight or nine points, and then in the late two thousand, somewhere two thousand seven, eight or nine, they increased the non resident fee for the non refundable license, and then they shrunk the percentage of tags that went to non residents, and I just walked away. I said, "Heck with that! I'll not, I'll probably never hunt Oregon." only to have my son move there. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> dang, if I would have kept building all these points, well, I don't know. I, when I look at how many preference points it takes to draw, I still don't know that I would have been at the front of the line. For yeah, I just, I just jumped on Go Hunt Insider before we started the podcast here. And, you know, there's, there's three or four units that if you're applying for a controlled hunt are going to be top of the list. And we're talking Rocky Mountain Elk on the east side of the state now. Uh, but those are, you know, the Wenaha, the Walla Walla, Mount Emily, and you can probably throw Sled Springs in there. But the first three I mentioned for a rifle tag, mm-hmm. you have to have max points. You have to have 22 points to draw. And they only give one non-resident tag for like the Wenaha unit only gets one tag. They're very, yeah. very stingy with tags. Well, they're not going to plow through that big pile of point holders at one tag per year. Yeah. So huh. your your odds are basically zero if you're getting into the game now for those units. But there are several other controlled hunts, both archery and rifle. And they do have a handful of muzzleloader controlled hunts as well that really don't take too many points to draw. You know, three to five points, you can draw a lot of those hunts. Hmm. The problem is most of those draw hunts that you draw are equivalent to an over-the-counter hunt at best in you know a place like Montana or Idaho. Yeah, well, Oregon has a ton of over-the-counter units, at least for archery, right? They do, yeah. For both Rosies and and Rockies. Yeah, I think there's only two Roosevelt-controlled hunts, and uh, there's a handful of of controlled hunts for Rockies. But yeah, I would say. 75 or 80% of the state is over the counter for archery. So I, before we got on the podcast, I downloaded the regulations from Oregon. Uh, I went, just like you, I went out on, well, actually I have it open here on my computer while we're talking, the uh, Go Hunt Insider. And it looks like May 15th is the date. The time, May 15th the, is the deadline the, the to deadline apply. That you don't want to miss if yep. you're building points in Oregon. 
Yep. And from my gathering, I I have at times, and, and this is a little bit of a tangent, I've made a donation to Oregon, I'll call it Game and Fish, but what do they call themselves uh, there? ODFW, Oregon yeah, Department of Fish and Wildlife. Fish and Wildlife, yeah. Because uh, there's certain big bighorn sheep hunts that don't have a point system. And so every once in a while when I feel generous, I buy a license and I throw in for that. Um, but as far as the, the upfront fee, you got to buy the hunting license first, correct? Correct. To apply. Just, yep. Yeah. And just to even build points. So that's $167, I think 167 Yep. Yeah. And then you have to pay your application fee. Which is eight dollars per species. Okay, and then if you draw, it's five hundred and seventy some dollars. Is it? Yep, five seventy one for non resident elk tag. Okay, so by the time you're all done, you're gonna have about seven hundred and fifty bucks in it. Yeah, that's uh, maybe yeah. (laughs) <laughs> 740 something yeah right right there <clears throat> i'm an accountant we just round everything exactly right? you engineers get right down to the dollar to the penny the penny yeah so with that uh oregon's one of the states that has a preference point system not a bonus point system correct they have a they have a it's a kind of a hybrid system so 75 percent of the tags are allocated on preference, meaning those with the most points automatically receive 75% of the tags. And then the remaining 25% are distributed randomly. So with no no respect given to what your point level is, the other 25% is just kind of like Idaho's job. Everyone has the same chance at those 25% of the tags. You know, I'm not sure if they give you any weighted preference based on your points. Or if My understanding points... is that they don't. Okay. But it was just, and uh, the reason being, and I, at least reading the regs, that's what it seems like yeah. in reading Go Hunt. And then also, as I was, I've been in Oregon for two stints already this year, hanging out with my son. And when I bump into people, they're like, when are you coming to Oregon elk hunting? And I kind of talk about how expensive it might be and how I got out of the point game, blah, blah, blah. And, and they always say, well, just remember, there's always that 25% where everybody's got the same choice. So um, that their comments confirm what my research tells me. So yeah. if, if there's somebody listening uh, that says, no, you guys are all wrong, uh, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm wrong a lot. So it <laughs> seems like every, about half the deci- more than half the decisions I make about, well, should I go here? Should I go there? Should I do this? Should I do that? Usually they're the wrong decision. So, <clears throat> but, Well, you, you know, and that's the hard part with, with the draw hunts. And I'll just, you know, my experience with the draw hunts, I drew sled springs uh, which is Unit 57 in the northeast corner of the state there. I drew it back in, oh, really? I don't remember what year, 2013, 14, something like that. Hmm. And when I started applying, it took me 10 points to draw. When I started applying 10 years ago as a non-resident, you could draw that hunt every three years. So, so again, another, another illustration of point creep and 
the negative effects of that, but it's up to, it takes 12 points now as a non-resident to draw sled springs. And honestly, it wasn't any better than a general hunt in Wyoming or an over-the-counter hunt in Idaho. That Yeah, there were a couple bigger bulls, but there's big bulls on over-the-counter hunts. And Yeah. Was it, but because it was a controlled hunt, was it less crowded? Uh, no. In fact, it was really? insanely crowded. <laughs> really? <laughs> so it's mostly timber company land, and they close all of their roads to motorized vehicles, which is good. Yeah. But, man, we, we took mountain bikes with trailers and our camp on it and went back in on some of these roads and got back there and got up the next morning, and there were five or six other hunters that were bugling where we were. So, yeah, it's you. Uh, it's hard to get away from... Hmm. from traffic there we were we were literally calling in elk that had arrows you know sticking in their shoulder uh, yeah it was not pretty yeah it was it was it was a good hunt there were elk there's a lot of elk mm-hmm. but it just wasn't a 10 point controlled hunt yeah i guess when you think about if you can find a hunt for 10 points you do the math and say all right i've got 160 some dollars a year just for my my non-refundable license and let's say I've got let's say with that and the point or the application fee you've got $175 a year so you got 10 years of that tied up that's $1,750 and then you got the year you draw your tag you got the other 500 and something so yeah you're over $2,300 invested in a over the counter type hunt yeah hmm so they, well, I don't you know, know and that's, that we're encouraging anyone here, Corey. Well, here, here's what I'm going to say. So for the controlled hunts, they limit elk and deer to 5% of the tags right. for non-residents. Yeah. So if they give out 200 tags, a maximum of 10 tags go to non-residents, and they don't guarantee any. So it's just once right. they hit that maximum, no more non-residents can draw. But in the example I used in Sled Springs, it's showing... They gave out 206 resident tags for the archery hunt and six mm-hmm. non-resident tags. So 3%. Yeah. Yeah. And if I understand correctly, that 5% non-resident quota, don't they have the opportunity for the the guided hunts to take half of that before the non-resident draw even occurs, or the before the draw even occurs? So it's, in some units, the the non-resident quota can effectively get down to two and a half percent if the guided uh, clients, whatever you want to call it, uh, draw, take the their half first. I'm not sure what the percentage is, but I do know that the guided uh, allocation, the guide allocation of tags comes out of the non-resident quota. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, my understanding, uh, and uh, again, I was <laughs> talking to some residents there, and they're like, oh, you guys get kind of get messed up by that. I'm like, what? And so I looked into it further. I'm like, hmm, so in some units, I might only be applying for 2.5% of the tags instead of 5%. So yeah. That's why, for me, I've kind of looked at Oregon as a, as a non-resident. To me, Oregon is that place I want to go on an over-the-counter Roosevelt elk hunt. Yep. Um, it's, I think, Oregon, from if you look at the record books, 
is probably the sweet spot for Roosevelt elk. It is. Yeah, there's definitely good Roosevelt hunting, and it's basically the entire coast. You know, there's only two draw units for archery for Roosevelt. Everything else is over the counter. And and honestly, for Rocky Mountains, that's where I was going with, with uh, my negative comments about the draw system and how hard it is and how expensive it is. But Oregon's, I think, kind of an overlooked state to a degree for over-the-counter hunting, even for Rocky Mountain elk. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of a lot of the units that get really crowded there, and I think that's what turns a lot of people off is some of those popular units for over-the-counter get crowded. But there are a lot of places to go in Oregon over-the-counter that you can get away from people. I mean, you just look at the Oregon side of Hell's Canyon, and yeah. most of that's over-the-counter, and very few people are willing to work and, and hunt that rugged country, and it's got a huge population of elk. Oregon, I think, is the number two state for elk population second to Colorado. Yeah, they got a lot of lot of elk. I'm all, what is it, like 60 or 70,000 Roosevelt's and 70 yeah. or 80,000 Rockies? Yep. Yeah, Something I think, like that. yeah, maybe even more Rockies, but yeah, it's yeah. a lot of I, elk. I guess that's where I, I, I need to think about Oregon more as an over-the-counter opportunity when people ask me. I say, well, for over-the-counter, you're pretty much looking at Colorado and Idaho. And I know part of what drives me to say that is the geographics of it is many people who are asking that question are from the Midwest or back east. And would you suggest that they drive through Colorado or drive through Oregon or, or drive through Idaho to get to Oregon? So drive all that extra distance when they could have over-the-counter hunting without having to drive the extra distance. And For sure. I, I, I got to get out of that mindset, I guess. And yeah, and I, I would probably rank Oregon below, you know, at least Idaho and Montana. And, and Colorado is a unique one. It's probably on par with Oregon just because there's a lot of hunters in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing, nice thing about Colorado is there's a lot more uh, remote area that you can get away from people or at least attempt to get away from people. I think it's getting yeah. harder and harder. Uh, Oregon, though, is, is kind of, there's some areas in Oregon that I think are completely untapped, especially from a non-resident over-the-counter standpoint uh, where they can get into elk. And sure, if you're hunting close to a road and some of the units that are fairly flat, you're going to have a lot of competition and yeah, it's uh, you're going to see other hunters and the elk are going to be a lot more skittish and Oregon's not known for big elk, but there's definitely big elk on in some of those over-the-counter hunts. Hmm. That's good to know. I, I've seen, well, uh, every year you and I get pictures and emails from people who, they take some fantastic Roosevelt elk on those oh, over-the-counter yeah. hunts, which is probably why I lose some sleep thinking about that. <laughs> There's just something about a Roosevelt elk, and I know we've talked about it before and we've got more podcasts coming up about Roosevelt elk, but mm-hmm. there's just something about their the the coloration of their antlers, those big muscle rippled bodies and then, you know, when they crown out on top and palmate and their massive antlers and yeah, there's just there's something intriguing about a Roosevelt elk that I plan on uh, giving a full effort to immersing myself in that experience this fall again. Yeah. So if if someone was 
thinking about building points in Oregon and you've already invested in the $167 license just to build points, if you are doing an over-the-counter elk hunt, you may as well do it in Oregon if you've already made that investment in the license. Absolutely. And honestly, I don't know that I would suggest anyone at this point to get into the point game in Oregon just because the, the hunts that are going to be worth building points for are really out of reach for somebody starting now unless you're you know willing to invest 15 or 20 years and even then it might not be enough yeah but on the flip side i would say if you're going to hunt over the counter in oregon you might as well at least buy a point right because it's only going to cost you another eight dollars to do that and if you're buying the license and hunting over the counter anyway you know maybe in five or ten years there's a hunt that's a little better than the over-the-counter hunt you're hunting and you can draw that. Yeah. Why do I associate Oregon elk hunters as almost all being archery hunters? Is well, just... I think <laughs> because most of the rifle hunting there is uh, all controlled, if I remember correctly. Uh, for for Rockies? Yes. Yep. What, what about for Rosies? Uh, I think Roosevelt has a, I want to say a one-week rifle season that's over the counter. Oh, okay. If well, I remember as thick as that country is, when I go over there and hang out with my son, I'm like, "How would you? why would you even need a rifle here? You, you can't see more than 10 yards. So if, if you see one, he's going to be in rifle or in archery range. <laughs> yep. Well, and, you know, the Rocky Mountain hunting, I believe the only over-the-counter rifle hunts for, you know, the east side of the state, I think it's spike only. Oh, okay. So everything else for rifle hunting on the east side of the state is controlled. Um, I'm trying to find the dates for that. I want to say it's mid or late October. There's a one-week uh, general spike season for rifle. Not seeing the date here, but... Yeah, and then archery is, you know, there's a lot more opportunity for over-the-counter. Muzzleloaders, all controlled hunts. Hmm. Well, so, that's and one of the things why we, I associate... Oregon elk hunters as archery hunters yeah, because that's where their real opportunity exists to hunt every year. You mentioned, you know, hunting the coast with a rifle. If the elk aren't bugling, I don't know how you would kill a a Roosevelt elk (laughs) over on the coast. (laughs) There's just, I don't think you could ever even, it's so thick you can't slip in on them. It's so thick you can't see them. (laughs) Their range is so small. It's not like you get multiple opportunities a day. So... I think a lot of those elk move down onto private uh, and then, you know, they're feeding out in the clear cuts. So those are the, the prime opportunities for a rifle hunter for the Roosevelt. Yeah. Well, we, we've had some guests on our podcast who are serious Roosevelt hunters. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if they'd let me tag along one day just to... <laughs> just to be a nuisance, but hopefully to take notes because I I don't know why you were describing uh, the terrain they live in and the just what they're like. I, I, there's just something about a Roosevelt elk that over the last ten years of thinking about it has got me excited of going and doing it. And you've explained to me the frustration of hunting that country and, and everybody who I talk to who archery hunts rosies just looks at me like, 
you know, you're coming from the wide open spaces of Montana. You're going to be really frustrated. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we learned some, some valuable tips. One of them is carrying a pair of shears with you, just some brush shears. And it's funny because Donnie and I, you know, we, we went and hunted with David Brinker and his buddy Brent Mm -hmm. and with, you know, David had a, a commitment the first couple of days that we were hunting, and then obviously he had his broadhead incident, so we only got to hunt with him one or two days, and Brent was was gracious enough to stay with us and hold our hand for a couple of days. Um, but Donnie and I are kind of out in the front, go, you know, busting through all this brush that's wet every day, and we look behind us, and Brent's come along with a pair of brush shears, you know, snippers behind us cutting out a trail. <laughs> And uh, I asked him a couple times, why, why aren't you going first? And I think it came down to the brush was wet before we went through it. So we were going through knocking all the water off of it. And then he'd come along and, and shear out the trail. So hmm. next season, this season, I'll be carrying a pair of my own snippers with me. And Well, you know where you can get those. I do. <laughs> Cooper has a whole bunch of those. Yep. So... I think that maybe you could go out and do some prototype testing with their, their, uh, they call them the lopper, I think, if I remember right. Kind of like flopper without the half on it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's one of the few places in the world you have to hunt with a machete or a pair of pruning shears. Exactly. (laughs) But, you know, and saying that, we definitely hunted... There's brush. There's no no way around that. You're going to go through brush. You're going to get wet. But when you come into one of those old growth canopies where everything is just black because there's nothing can, you know, the sun can't penetrate through that canopy, mm-hmm. but there's little patches of these just brilliant green ferns and the moss that's growing on these old growth trees is just almost fluorescent. It's uh, it, It's an experience. Just that terrain and the habitat that those elk live in uh, that was that was worth it for me, and then mm-hmm. to see that white body just materialize out of the fog, and it was you know there's something just uh, completely different than any experience I've had hunting yeah. elk for sure. Well, Eastern Oregon has a ton of public land. Yeah, the Coast Roosevelt area has quite a bit of public land, but doesn't it also have a lot of timber company land that's open to hunting or a small fee to? to hunt it or something? I believe so, yeah. We hunted all on uh, public land when we were over there last year, but I know that there is a lot of the the timber company, and I don't know, I know some of the companies, I think Warehouser's one of them that started charging, uh, and I don't remember if they have a draw to, you know, you you apply to get access or if you can just pay the permit fee, and I don't remember how much it was. I think I remember hearing $250 or $450. to be able to access their land and it's only open during parts of the season parts of it are closed down and so it's hmm. uh we just to keep it simple and less right. expensive we just stayed on the national forest sure so archery season for roosevelt is like late august to late september Yep, yeah, and it's the same for Roosevelt and Rockies okay it's the i believe the last saturday in august and then it runs for 30 days and closes 30 days later on a Sunday. Okay. So it always hmm. opens on a Saturday. Gotcha. And then for Roosevelt's, I'm looking at the regulations here. There's uh, rifle hunts. Uh, 
And it looks like pretty much all the units have a, a four-day rifle hunt in November. And then it looks like a couple of them have a, some of the units have a second rifle season that is a week later that runs for, looks like, maybe six or seven days. Hmm. So, but. I, I that, couldn't even imagine trying to hunt those things without, <laughs> without the advantage of hearing them bugle. <laughs> uh, well, if you look at the harvest rates, uh, the rifle hunts have, this is weird to see that the harvest rates of rifle and archery are about the same depending on the unit. Usually you have way higher harvest rates in rifle hunts than you do archery hunts, <laughs> except doing the research on some of these, it's like, whoa. But when you look at the terrain, as you've described it. Uh, pretty easy to see why. Yeah. So. Hmm. Yeah. So you well, know, I, I again, I think that Oregon's a, a great place to go over the counter. Uh, man, I would, I would, I would feel bad to steer somebody into applying, starting building points to apply for hunts unless they know, you know, somebody who lives in a certain unit that's a controlled hunt that takes three to five points. And like I mentioned, there are several controlled hunts in Oregon that you can draw with two or three points. Mm -hmm. And those hunts might have less pressure than a regular over-the-counter hunt. But I think I'd probably invest my time into some of those units that are a little bit more remote that are over-the-counter that you can uh, get away from people a little bit more easily. Hmm. Okay. Good advice. But we got to make sure no one misses the deadline. On well, the other thing May we 15. didn't mention, the, oh, the very important thing, yeah. you have to pick up your tag before your season oh. opens. Yeah. So if you're hunting over the counter, you have to have your tag in hand before that last Saturday in August. And I believe mm. there's an opportunity one time you can sign an affidavit and say that you've not hunted. Uh, and they'll allow you at the fishing game offices to be able to pick up that tag after the yeah. season started, but definitely don't rely on that because you show up on a Saturday, you may not be able to get your tag till Monday. And uh, I think it's only a one-time thing if I, and I may be making that part of it up, but I do know you have to have your tag before the season opens. Yeah. I'm reading where I downloaded the regulations. There's a big piece here that says if the season is already open you must purchase your tag from an Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife office so you can't buy it from a vendor if the season is already started yeah hmm. yeah don't show up at their office on a Saturday you'll yeah. be waiting <laughs> <laughs> you won't be hunting <laughs> yeah and so that's for uh, controlled hunts and over the counter over hunts. the counter yeah hmm so for yeah, me, you know, being in, in Idaho, it's a short drive over to Ontario, Oregon, which is right on the Idaho border. And so we can get over and mm -hmm. get our tags. You know, last year we drove over the day before the season opened. So we stopped and got our license and tags on the gotcha. drive over. But this year where we're going on the 5th, we definitely have to be sure we remember to plan ahead and get our license and tag before we head over. That's a good reminder yeah <laughs> it would, it'd be disappointing for people to show up and find out oh you got to buy that from a oregon df what is it df and w office and they don't open for a couple days hmm yep you get to be a tourist for a while <laughs> yeah 
Or he'd, he'd get to do some scouting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so May 15th is the deadline for controlled hunt applications. Uh, they've got a pretty good online system. I remember five or six years ago, it was so hard. Most of the states, their websites were horrible, and mm-hmm. a lot of them are getting much better and easier to navigate, easier to apply. So, Yeah. Well, you got to do that. Remember that there's the license fee you got to buy up front to apply. You got to pay an application fee. And do they have a points-only code? I they, do. they do. Yeah, you can yeah. apply just for a bonus point. Yeah. And uh, then if you aren't buying a point, just remember that three-fourths of the non-resident pool. So if you kind of branch off in that example you were using, Corey, of 200 tags, that 5% means at a maximum, 10 of those are going to go to non-residents. Yeah. And of the 10, three-fourths or 75%, I don't know if that would be seven or eight tags, are going to the maximum point holders, and the remainder, two or three, are going to a random draw. So by the time you work your way down that decision tree you're making quite an investment for pretty low chances of drawing a tag. Yep, absolutely. And there's definitely hunts that, you know, they offer more tags. I'll pick another example here really quickly while we're on the subject. But for archery, I just want to find one here that's got pretty good draw odds. So let's just say the, uh, let's use, let's use Starkey. Mm, yeah, that is. Starkey's <clears throat> experimental forest. The, right. You know, they, they basically fenced off this area and have elk and predators and everything in there. And they've done this huge study on elk yeah, and habitat and everything. And they allow a few people to go in there and hunt. Uh, well, that's a poor example, actually. <laughs> 2018, <laughs> they gave zero non-resident tags. In 2016, they gave one. 2015, zero. 2014, one. Hmm. That's well, for well, the you're archery. For another unit, I want to explain to people how important the Starkey Experimental Forest is to elk. Many of the uh, studies about elk, uh, browsing preferences, how they respond to motorized travel, how they respond to hunting pressure, how they're influenced by all kinds of things, uh, have been done on that experimental forest. If if you, especially in the motorized travel stuff, if you Google motorized travel elk, most of the research and science and studies you're going to find have come off the Starkey. Yep. Yeah. And like you said, they've done, there's just all sorts of experiments they've done to look into effects on elk and, yeah. and other things, you know, predators and yeah. it's not just an elk study. All right, so I'm just trying to get a, a good controlled hunt here. All right, so if we were to look at, say, the Snake River unit, and that's mm-hmm. the the far northeast corner. It's on Hell's Canyon. It's rugged. Uh, the thing about Oregon that's going to probably surprise a lot of people is how low their bull-to-cow ratio is in almost every unit. Even their well-managed, you know, high-quality units the bull to cow ratio is insane. There's just so many cows there. Uh, but the Snake River unit, the bull to cow ratio is 5 to 100. Uh, 
post-hunt, mature bull to cow, there's five branch-antlered bulls per hundred cows. Yep. Sounds so, like a good place to go cow hunting. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. So looking at draw odds in the Snake River unit, um, 2018, there were 105 resident tags and five non-resident tags. Uh, harvest success rate was 24%. And I think the reason the success rate is so high there is because the people who are hunting that unit probably either have horses or they know what they're in for and they're they're willing to put in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's an example of a draw hunt that and you can draw. The, is that archery that you're... This is archery. Yep. Okay. But in 2018, you were guaranteed to draw that with zero points. Oh, wow. And huh. there's you know only 110 people in that whole unit. So... There are opportunities to draw a controlled hunt in Oregon and potentially get away from people in the crowds. So you're you're looking at that. Are you filtering in go hunt when you're I doing am. that? Yep. Okay. So yeah. uh, what Corey's using is the uh, filter 2.0 software that uh, go hunt has as part of their insider program. Because for me to sit down and research all that and pull all these tables from Oregon uh, Fish and Wildlife site would take forever. Yep. And then that same rifle hunt, uh, there were 267 resident tags and eight non-resident tags. So 3% but sh- went to non-residents. Yeah. and But it's showing, you know, success rate of 40%. For that wow. rifle hunt, it's a November November second through November tenth hunt. Hmm. Uh, but again, that took eleven points to draw the rifle hunt in the same area that you can draw archery with zero points. So, further evidence as to why I associate Oregon elk hunters with archers rather than rifle hunters. Yep. If I live there, and well, you're looking at the non-resident point requirement, but. I suspect there's some similar ratio for residents. Uh, obviously, if you want to hunt elk every year in Oregon, you're better off being an archer than a rifle hunter. For sure. Unless, you know, like there's the over-the-counter spike hunt that, yeah. you know, I just, I think there's so many people during those hunts that it's it's even more difficult to find the elk during that rifle hunt than it would be during an archery hunt. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, and my experience comes from one controlled hunt in the northeast corner of the state and one Roosevelt hunt over the counter. But my dad actually was an outfitter in Oregon for several years. Oh, and so really? I, okay. Yeah, I did spend time in central Oregon uh, while he was outfitting there, and I never actually hunted, but I called in elk and mm-hmm. spent time there in archery season. So, well. That's way more experience than I have in Oregon. That's why I've been asking all the questions is uh, for me to profess that I know anything about it other than what I've been able to read and research uh, would, would be a lie. But. And it's got, Oregon's got some really diverse terrain, you know, on the east Mm -hmm. side, you've got everything from Hell's Canyon, which is steep and rugged and really open you've got timber on the north faces but then everything else is just open grassland basically on those steep breaks that roll down into hell's canyon on the snake river and then it you know you've got some plateau type 
the flats that are just big, open ponderosa pine flats that go for miles. And, you know, it's really easy to get turned around on, on some of that. And then you get, you know, in it to as you go south, you've got some more desert sagebrush and rocky stuff. And then as you, obviously as you get over to the west side, it goes from a lot of uh, timbered area that's not as brushy. And then once you break over on the coastal range, it gets really brushy. And so it's just a very diverse state for habitat and terrain. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> one of the things I want to make, people aware of as it comes to Oregon, as you were talking about these different terrain types in central Oregon, uh, the John Day country, um, I guess maybe it'd be considered Northeast. Would you, would you consider the John Day country Northeast? I think so. I think kind of the interstate that runs, you know, from Idaho to Portland, there's that I-84, I guess. I think everything East of that, I would consider Northeast. Okay. Well, uh, one of the things I want to bring up is the the podcast, Elk Talk Podcast, is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and they have a really big project that they did uh, up in the headwaters of the John Day country. Uh, They worked with some landowners there, and I'm trying to remember what year this was. I can't remember if it was 2013 or 14, but there was this checkerboard kind of in-holding pattern where a lot of the public land was hard to get to. Uh, and they worked with some some really good uh, landowners there, and as the result of doing it, they put together this project that opened up 13,000 acres of prime elk country, uh, which uh, for me, when I think about uh, the, the number of elk in Oregon and uh, having sat on the board of the Elk Foundation for six years, uh, the volunteer level, the the level of volunteerism in Oregon is amazing. And to see these kind of projects open up more elk country in Oregon, uh, doesn't it doesn't come as a surprise to me because I understand how committed the elk hunters are in Oregon. They're, they're all about it. And uh, so just want to make sure that people understand that there are amazing volunteers in Oregon doing amazing work in the John Day place is just w- one example of lots and lots of pieces of, of public land that are now available to elk hunters in Oregon that wouldn't otherwise be there. For sure. Yeah. Now, if we can just get a tag, <laughs> right? That's right. <laughs> uh, I didn't even look to see. I, I think most of that is on a limited entry. Uh, I don't uh, think so. I think the no? John Day oh. side, what's... Uh, is it? Okay. Yeah, I can pull up hmm. the map here, but I think John Day is, you know, everything from like Ukiah down to John Day... All of that country, I want to say, is... Is over the counter? Yeah. Okay. See, that's why I got you here. <laughs> and I'm sure people are, who actually know what they're talking about are listening and saying, yeah. no, it's not. But Well, uh, there's there's some bighorn sheep in there, and that's when I do get a wild hair and decide that I'm going to apply for bighorn sheep in Oregon. I always apply for that unit because there's, there's actually, I think the river splits to a... Two sheep units. Not that we're talking about sheep hunting, but uh, that that's where my mind always goes with it. But knowing some people who hunt there, uh, they're pretty passionate about 
the quality of the elk hunting in that area and that there's some some really good country where you can get away from things also. Yeah. But yeah, I think uh looks like here most of all that area is over the counter. Oh, well, see, there you go. Yeah. Need more of that stuff. Need yep. more access. The Elk Foundation is, I, I just got the report, they're at more than 1.2 million acres of improved or new access. That's a lot of acreage. I was going to say, that's incredible. So, yeah, but. a project like that one at the John Day, 13,000 acres, that's a lot of that's a mm. lot of access that was opened up there. Yeah. And that's, uh, I don't know, you're the accountant, but what's that, 1% of the 1.2 million? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that would be 1%. That's awesome. So, yeah. Well, I don't know what else we can uh, I, I don't either, share Corey. on Oregon. I could tell hunting stories, but... Yeah, uh, <laughs> I could tell big hunting stories, but they wouldn't be about Oregon. Uh, I'm excited I, to... Uh, we haven't released the podcast we have coming up in the hopper with our buddies who hunt Roosevelt elk all the time over there, but... Yeah, I think uh, for anybody that's interested in Roosevelt elk hunting, that's one they're not going to want to miss out right. on listening to. So. Yeah, we've Didn't got we Shannon Mobs and Shannon Mobs and Corey Ford. Yeah, Angry Spike, Angry Spike Productions are the guys you want to follow on that stuff. Yep, they've done it a time or two and know what they're doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or three or four. Or ten. Yeah. Uh, but well, well we'll leave folks at that we uh we don't want to discourage anybody but we also want to be honest uh you know for me this our listeners are spending hard-earned money in their applications and tag fees and i want to make sure that they get the honest feel of you know here's here's what you're gonna do or what you're gonna get for the money you spend and so yep. Well, and I think, you know, it's discouraging from the draw standpoint, but again, I think there's some, some overlooked elk hunting in Oregon for an over-the-counter, especially archery hunter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and if you were coming from California or Washington, uh, those are probably closer places than driving to Montana or Wyoming or yep. Colorado. Absolutely. Okay. With that... You got anything else? You got no, I was going to say, do we want to jump down any rabbit holes or we just want to keep this one? Um, I'm thinking I would prefer to not go down rabbit holes because we're recording this on what's today, April 12th. Yep. If, if you could uh, see a tired person, you'd be looking at me. <laughs> or it any is, other accountant who realizes yeah, that tax day is coming up. None of the CPAs up. at this time of year are really at the top of their game. Don't bring your taxes to somebody on April 10th because they're already so wore out that they're not going to give you... They're, they're going to try their best, but even their best isn't going to be their A game. So, yep. so I'm, I, I, that's a long way of saying, I don't know that I have the energy for any rabbit holes today. <laughs> I was going to say, I went on a bivy hunt last week for sheds. What? Yeah, I went bivy hunting for sheds and... Uh, yeah. You you would actually go hiking and bivy camping specifically for sheds? We did, yeah. I actually lined up a helicopter to take us in. What? 
man. But it I, fell I, through. Tyler couldn't make it to, uh, to on time to make the helicopter, so we had to hike in. And hmm. we, uh, so Tyler Crockett, we just uh, yeah. released, what was it, episode 22? Yeah, I think it was 21. Like 21. 21 was with Tyler. Was, yeah. And so, uh, he and he and I went in. We had a plan to rent a helicopter and have him drop us off in this remote location. And then we were going to run through out. there with a the butterfly net and scoop up all the antlers and uh-huh. hike out of there with them. And it didn't work out. So we had to hike in there. And it's we were post-holing through snow a lot of it. And we got all the way back to the vantage point. And uh, it was about... I don't know, 5.30 or 6 p.m. by the time we made it back there, and we're planning on three days in there, and we uh, glassed up 24 bulls, and only four of them had dropped their antlers. No way. <laughs> so rather than wasting all of our time and energy, and it was it's 4,000 vertical feet from, mm. uh, from the top down to the bottom and then back up the other sides, another four. Mm. And uh, we just decided to head out, so we spent the next day hiking out and yesterday we actually went for a just a day trip into another area and i think we ended up picking up 11 antlers yesterday but we're going back in bivy hunting next week and we're going to make a three-day trip in there and hmm. do it again I'm worried about you <laughs> couldn't you at least bring a rifle and shoot a bear or something while you're in there? you know they extended wolf season i don't know if that, did i talk about the wolf that was in my driveway yeah 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 you did i saw the, uh uh, a little bit of footage of that. It looked like it was just standing there and looking at you guys. It kind of was, and I don't know if you could hear, and so my son Isaac pulled out his phone. The wolf was just 60 yards up. It was in our driveway. We were going to, you know, for spring break, we were leaving. I had the camper hooked up, and everybody mm. packed in there, and I'd put my rifle in the camper just because we were so crowded mm. in the in yeah. the front of the truck there, and we come around the corner from my house, literally 100, 150 yards below my house. And I said, uh, or my wife said, what's that in the road? And I said, it's a wolf. And she said, no, I think it's a neighbor's dog. And I said, no, it's a wolf. <laughs> and uh, had a collar on it. So I jump out, truck still sliding down the driveway. And I jump out and I'm trying to rip the side off of the camper to get the door open and get my rifle out. And Isaac mm. pulls out his iPod or whatever he's got, his little digital device, and records video of it. And by the time I got the rifle out and everything, it had made it up the hill, but I didn't get a shot. Wow. I think you get some demerits for that. I, uh, You know, it, this has been the season. I've had more opportunities at Wolf's this winter than ever, and I have just squandered those opportunities. Hmm. Wow. But I, I am worried about somebody who would do a bivy hunt for elk antlers. Really? Yeah. I, I know people think I'm nuts, and I, I am. I'm not here to plead sanity. Uh, I I just, as you've seen, I don't carry them out. I leave them hanging in trees. I'm The last thing I'm going to do in April is go look for shed antlers. But see, this is my physical conditioning. Yeah, so I, that's, need to, I need some physical conditioning after driving a desk all winter. <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to do it by going and hunting shed antlers. Man, it's addicting. I know, it, it must be. I, I look, you know, most of the people I follow, uh, 
on whether it's social media or just emails or whatever, there's some people who get really serious about hunting shed antlers. And we had this same discussion when we had Tyler on the podcast. Uh, he's He seems to be pretty serious about finding those antlers. I, yeah, I'm, it was... I'm it was kind of a, a bad thing when I moved into the office with him because the first day I was in here, I didn't get any work done. We just sat there and plotted out our plans to pick up shed antlers for the next 10 years and all the places <laughs> we'd been, all the places we wanted to go. Uh, the, well, I got a lot of places you could go if you're willing to travel. Oh, what? <laughs> we're going to Jackson Hole, Wyoming in three weeks. So You guys are doing that again. We're going to do it again. Are you guys going to go participate in the mayhem or are you going to go kind of off-site and, or don't you want to disclose that? You know, we're going to do the mayhem again, I think, just just for the novelty of it. There's just something mm -hmm. about an adrenaline rush as you're driving 50 miles an hour on a two-track road and you jump out with a headlamp at midnight and take off running across the mountain uh -huh. looking for an antler in the dark. It's, you know, there's when just something it about it. It opens midnight on May 1st. Oh, wow. Hmm. And so we'll oh. probably even talked yesterday. We might just go and do it for a couple hours and then go back to the truck and sleep till daylight and then go somewhere else. But, hmm. Well, I, I'll be doing something else on May 1st. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it won't be that. My wife could probably convince me to fix the washing machine before I'd go spend time looking for shed antlers. But. Man. That's, I know. That's, that's desperation <laughs> getting out of a shed hunt to do that. <laughs> and anyone who knows how much I hate being a handyman, that's that's a rather profound claim on my part there. I'm sure you probably talked about your disdain for uh, yard work and all that in your marital advice podcast on... You know, we didn't get into it that much. You didn't? I know. Because I've, I've done so many other sidebars about just don't be handy. If you want to elk hunt, don't be handy. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I didn't really get into that that much, but I, I get it. No, I, I understand uh, how some people could be enamored by that. And, and interested in it. There's the, like you said, the, the exercise that you get from it. Um, probably learn a little bit about elk and their behaviors and habits, just even though it's not elk season. And you're out there doing something fun. So Absolutely. Yeah, we hiked 14 miles yesterday. And, Oof. you know, I had six elk antlers probably averaged you know, six or seven pounds a piece. So I had 35 mm -hmm. or 40 pounds of antlers on my back plus my 15-pound pack. So, wow. you know, by the end of the day, climbing up that last hill back out of there, it was yeah. it was pushing me pretty hard physically. And, and this time of year is just, for the most part, it's beautiful to be out there. Just everything's greening up and Not the here. snow's it's melting. Well, I was going to say, we night. got snowed on and rained on all day yesterday, so it wasn't... Uh, really great example of spring weather but yeah now i could give you some places in new mexico in nevada in montana in wyoming where i'll be sitting on a hill glassing and i'll see shed antlers it's like hmm, no one must come in here picking sheds yeah you know nevada is we used to go there for a mule deer antlers but just with the number of elk in Nevada, it's definitely on our radar. Yeah. 
Has, has Nevada implemented a shed hunting season like Utah and Colorado have? They have. Yeah, last year that was uh, it was kind of the trial implementation, and this year it's uh, in in effect. Hmm. Well, I I think that's getting to be more the norm. I think even parts of Wyoming, Southwest Wyoming, have implemented some sort of antler. They season. have. That's why the the uh, national forest behind the refuge there opens May first at midnight. It's They've, oh, they've got okay. a season on them, and and you know honestly, it's it's a few people who don't yeah. respect other hunters and don't respect the elk who bring that on. And actually, yesterday in our hike, we snowmobile in, and we go mm-hmm. you know on a snowmobile road or on a travel road that's open to to snowmobiles, and we get back into the end of the road, and then we hike from there. And it's you know snowshoes going back in, get to where we're going, take the snowshoes off, and start shed hunting. And I hiked in probably six miles from the snowmobile yesterday and was walking a ridge in the sagebrush and somebody had a snow bike. You know, it's a motorcycle that they put the track on and convert almost to a snowmobile, basically. They had ridden it down this ridge through the sagebrush all the way to the bottom of the canyon, shed hunting. Wow. And it just, it only takes a couple people doing stupid things like that that... Yeah. You know, that's that's harassing the elk. Yes, we're out hiking, all of that. That's not considered harassing the elk. You're on a motorized vehicle through an area that's closed, a winter range. Right. And uh, it just, that that's why there's rules and regulations on shed hunting in a lot of states is because a few people get greedy and yeah, ruin it for the rest of us. Yeah. The old 1% give the other 99% a bad, bad name. Yep. Or in the legal profession, I always say, you know, the bad part is that 99% of them give that other 1% a bad name. Yep. And my, my legal friends, my attorney friends always look at me. They <laughs> they, they don't get the humor in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, well, that's fun that you're doing that. I, I know I would bet most people listening to the podcast are in Corey's camp instead of Randy's camp. Uh but uh, I should give you some GPS coordinates, places to go. Yeah, you should. Yeah. yeah. No, Tyler and I were even talking because the area that we're, we're bivy going back in, it's about 11 miles in there. And most of the bulls, you know, you really aren't finding. We found, I think I packed out four last weekend on that two-day trip, but most of the elk are going to be way back in the basin there. And... Uh, you know, that that's the reason we go back there is because very few people are willing to go that far for antlers. Uh, you know, we're just looking for that mother load and mm-hmm. filling up our backpacks. But then you start thinking, we got to come out 11 miles. And <laughs> even if we find 10 elk antlers that are, you know, 70 or 80 pounds of antlers, that's yeah, that's quite the haul for 11 miles. So it's, Do you keep uh, them or sell them? We sell them. We'll keep, oh, you know, okay. if we find a great big set, we might keep it, but... Tyler and I, it's, it's kind of like elk hunting as a team. Whenever mm-hmm. we go, we just throw all the antlers together. So if he finds 20 and I find two, they all go in the pile and we sell them at the end of the season and split the money evenly. So okay. that way there's no competition trying to cut each other off and make it to a certain hillside. It's, yeah. hey, you hit that hillside, I'll hit this one. And mm-hmm. hmm. Well, I can understand that. I would... That I think it would if I was there with somebody, I, I wouldn't want it to be competitive. Yeah, and it I'm gets just, that way if you're really. Yeah, just you know, last year I think it was fourteen or fifteen dollars a pound for elk antlers, and 
Wow. So yeah, at some of these places and people are literally watching antlers fall off of elk and that's a foot race to them. And hmm. 14 or $15 a pound. Because yeah. my wife asked me, she said, you know, if something ever happened to you, if a grizzly bear ate you, what do you want me to do with all those dead elk you got out in your shop? <laughs> Don't tell her it's 14 or $15 a pound or she oh, might not wait till a grizzly bear eats you. I told her just throw them away if nobody wants them. But hmm, at 14 or $15 a pound, what's an antler weigh? Eight pounds on a bigger one? A big one, yeah. Hmm. So on one side, eight times... That's that's $100. Oh, it's over 100 for a set, yeah. Hmm. Well, now I got another way to tell her why I should be out hunting more. Exactly. Yo, darling, when I tip over and turn into grizzly bear turds, you can you can go sell all those elk and look at all the money you're going to get. <laughs> it's Randy's life insurance policy. <laughs> She's going to roll her eyes like, hey, come on, quit insulting my intelligence here. <laughs> yeah, we spend far more money on gas than we ever make back in collecting yeah. antlers, I'm sure. Yeah. Have you ever found antlers off a bull and said, I'm going to come back and hunt that? I haven't, you know, no. and we, we uh, well, I mean, to a degree, I found a, a set of antlers in my yard last winter and yeah. it was a nice 300 class bull, but um, no, I just, in Idaho, they move so much. Those elk just, they'll winter 15 or 20 miles from where they might rut. And so mm -hmm. trying to track them down. And again, we don't have a lot of trophy potential in the area that we shed hunt. There's some nice bulls, but mm -hmm. if I was to wander across to, 370 inch set of sheds i might spend a little bit of time trying to figure out where he came from yeah hmm. well i wish you all the luck in the world on that Corey. thanks i'll be uh tomorrow i'm gonna be the mc at the rmef banquet here in bozeman and uh i got three or four more days left of disinheriting the federal treasury uh, by the time I get done disinheriting the federal treasury, they'll probably have to do another government shutdown. Part of it. I've been, <laughs> been working at getting people refunds there. Uh, and, and the funny part is if anyone at my CPA firm, I, I'm no longer an owner. I just show up as a nuisance. If anyone of those people are listening, they're probably like, what's he talking about? All he does is show up here, drink some coffee, BS with clients, and getting our hair. And every <laughs> once in a while, he does a tax return. So, <laughs> uh, The life of a CPA in April. Yeah, that's right. Well, good luck. You only have a few days. I know. I'll need all the luck I can get, Corey. You have fun out there. We will. I'll, uh, I'll definitely, we'll, we'll have to do a, a follow-up after shed season. Yeah, and talk that's about what the, I, I want to do a follow-up after you go to Jackson. Yeah, we're going to try to, I don't know if we'll film it or if we'll just do a, an Instagram story again, but yeah. if anybody's interested, be sure you're following my Instagram page because we'll, uh, well, we'll do one next week too on our backcountry bivy hunt for sheds. What is that Instagram page? It's just coreyjacobson.elk101. See, I wouldn't have known the .elk101. I follow you, but it's already saved so i wouldn't have known how to find you yep yeah we might we might even do a little youtube video of it if we get the hard part is it's dark so the lighting's not good it's mm -hmm. you, you know, know it's, i've got a solution to that oh we've been using these new sony cameras these 
these full-frame A7-3s, you talk about low light. I mean, it, it can be like pitch blackout, middle of the night, and it still is unbelievable really? how good it is. Yeah. So, and then we use, I just got a new Sony mirrorless uh, 6400. So now we've got a 6300, a 6400, and a 6500. And all of them are excellent in low light also. They're smaller and easier. Not quite as good as the A7s, but still really, really good. So, And I've got the A6500. Oh, there and you go. Uh, I actually have the, the Sony RX100, and I just got the Mark mm. V. It actually does better in low light. Oh, really? Yeah, it's just a little oh, cool. you know, point-and-shoot. It's a higher-end point-and-shoot, but mm-hmm. I got it just for more of the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the vlogging or yeah. whatever that we do for Destination Elk, just to get the, the caller's perspective. And mm-hmm. Cool. So, yeah, we might. It's just hard to have a camera in your pocket if it's raining or something and pulling it out and trying to film where you're picking up an antler and you have tracking poles and... You know, I was whining to our camera guy, John, the other day, and he was not buying it. He's like, welcome to my life. <laughs> yeah, whenever I turn to our crew or complain about something, they just roll their eyes like, really? Tell me about it, Mac. Yeah, <laughs> singing to the choir. Yeah. So, people, hopefully they're following us on Instagram. What's your handle on Instagram? Uh, Randy Newberg Hunter. And then we got the podcast, which is... Elk Talk Podcast. And the website is elktalkpodcast.com. Yep. So cool. Well, okay. Corey, thanks. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks for rescuing me from the the world of taxes and accounting for a while. Well, I don't know that Oregon controlled hunt was a whole lot more exciting than taxes, <laughs> but at least gave your brain a gear switch there. <laughs> Oh, that's a bad commentary on <laughs> on uh, Oregon controlled hunts. You you have now officially discouraged everybody from Oregon controlled hunts. <laughs> at least all non-residents. <laughs> uh, did you watch any of the NCAA basketball? I did. So uh, the commercial, I don't remember if was it AT and T wireless or something. The the commentator that was on there, the just okay is not okay. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. That's, <laughs> we're probably going to get some memes over our podcast. Uh, probably. <laughs> uh, well, you have fun out there. Be safe. Find a lot of antlers. Uh, give Tyler my best. Tell him I'll be thinking of you guys while, <laughs> while you're working or hiking and I'm just driving a desk. Well, you'll have your time soon enough. I will. Well, folks, thanks for listening. Sure appreciate it. Yep. Catch you on the next one.